Boy, it's a real shame the bear market came along and just wrecked FTX's whole game and Salmon Club's whole plan because they were going to do some real cool stuff. And man, I feel like we missed out. So the FTX case is moving along. In fact, uh, Sam himself is now getting sued by the new owners of FTX. And there's some leaks coming out from notes and communications and whatnot. And uh, one of them is Sam's brother, Gabe, who worked with the FTX team. Wasn't Gabe the AI research guy? He got millions of dollars from Sam to do research on how to do AI safely, quote unquote. Yeah, he was involved in a few research projects and he had a great idea because he had maybe his biggest research project in mind. He proposed that the FTX Foundation buy a sovereign island nation (laughs) to build a bunker. I'm not kidding. This is all in the leaks for all the effective altruists and then conduct research on human genetic enhancement with, quote, probably there are other things that'd be useful as well. He says they want to prepare for, quote, some event where 50 percent to 99.99 percent of people die to ensure that most of the effective altruists survive and then develop, quote, sensible regulation around genetic human enhancement and build a lab there. This reminds me of Dr. Strangelove when they talk about surviving a nuclear winter at the bottom of mine shafts and having a population with a 10 to 1 ratio of women to men. Doesn't that sort of strike you the same? It, to me, it's, it feels like Coke dreams or like they're, they're hopped up on something and they just think they're, they're just gods of the world. They're unstoppable and they can print their own money. So why not buy a nation? It's always Nauru. They always want to buy the island of Nauru, Nauru, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. one of the poorest countries on the world. In fact, doesn't Australia have a concentration camp on this island? Ooh. They put boat people. It's a bad, bad place. In fact, Australia made it a espionage crime to even report about conditions in this camp because it's so bad. It just gives me insight into the team and maybe just the state of absolute financial corruption. You know, they were buying politicians like candy. They were spending $5,000 to get simple things shipped from Amazon to their office. And they were thinking about buying a nation, an island, and starting their own lab to research human genetic engineering. This is where they were at, right? This is, they thought they were unstoppable. I'm looking at a picture of Nauru right now, and it's an island so small that it can barely fit a airstrip. I mean, this thing's going to be underwater in a few years. So this is a dumb idea all the way around. You think maybe, uh, maybe we should think about it? I mean, you know, a little podcast compound. Who could make Bitcoin the currency of the nation? You know, maybe make it a popular tourist destination. You think about it. I'm afraid of sea level rising, so it would have to be on top of a mountain. <laughs> well, Sam's going to have to do something because FTX is coming after him for $1 billion that he, actually more than a billion that he has allegedly misappropriated before FTX went bankrupt. So apparently Sam pocketed somewhere over a billion dollars just on his own and they want it back. That'll be interesting. I wonder how they get the private keys out of his noggin. Because remember when Sam went home from the prison in the Bahamas and was supposedly under house arrest at his parents and he had full internet access and was playing storybook brawl or whatever that game is that he liked and suddenly all these funds started moving via DeFi protocols. Yeah, but he was just watching football. That's why he needed the VPN, because he wanted to connect to his Bahama server so he could use his, or was it baseball? I think it was baseball. He wanted to watch baseball. And then Matt Walsh of Castle Island Ventures, who's a big sports fan, raised the question, exactly what baseball games are on right now? There's nothing on. So, gotcha, (laughs) Sam. 
Oh, we were so close to FDX Island. Dang. I also found an interesting blog post from BitMEX that talks about Gary Gensler and his history at the CFTC. I think at this point it's been forgotten, but Gary Gensler began at the CFTC prior to his stint at MIT teaching that blockchain course. And he was present for the creation of the first gold ETFs. Similar to the current conversation around Bitcoin financial products and the Bitcoin ETF, there was a perception of the Goldbug community back in 2009 to 2012 that Gary was sort of a bad actor. He uh, was, uh, you know, corrupt. He favored institutional participation. He was all about disadvantaging small gold holders. And interestingly enough, some of the allegations of the gold bugs back then that sounded a bit conspiratorial turned out to be justified because there was a claim that JP Morgan had been doing spoofing in their trading of uh, gold uh, financial products and maybe even physically settled gold. And so spoofing is to sort of create fake trades and then withdraw them very quickly before they settle. And it's just a technique to kind of manipulate price. And because JP Morgan is a large company with many different divisions that cover all sorts of different products, they're able to sort of coordinate across products and essentially disadvantage other market participants. And finally, in 2020, JP Morgan was hit with a $920 million fine for behavior that took place in the 2008 to 2012 period when the gold ETFs were under discussion, when Gensler was at the CFTC, and the gold bug community was uh, putting on their tinfoil hats about all of this manipulated trading. So gold bugs were right. Who would have thought? Uh, Just don't tell uh, Schiff. And the interesting thing is we're sort of doing this all over again. Gary is at the helm at the SEC. He seems to be standing in the way of Bitcoin becoming more mainstream. They've denied a lot of ETF proposals. Now BlackRock has a proposal that is considered very strong. And since it's BlackRock that has over 500 successful ETF proposals, the perception is this thing is probably going to pass maybe. And Gary is looking bad once again. He was meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX, who we just discussed in October 2021. He's tried to hide his personal calendar because it's likely that there are more meetings there that look pretty bad. He and the SEC tried to create a kind of false flag operation to suggest that there were compliant crypto businesses under their incoherent ruling because they came up with this company called Prometheum that had no business, had investment from the Chinese Communist Party and claimed to be the solution for institutional crypto trading, but they had no business. They didn't really seem to understand how the market works and no one had heard of them. So it was this weird, you know, suddenly there's a company that's SEC compliant that no one's ever heard of. And uh, also apparently the executives of that company lied under oath in a congressional testimony. So give it a read. I mean, there's a lot of inference here, hearsay. I I definitely wouldn't take it with more than a grain of salt. But if you are prone to questioning Gensler, there's a lot of material here. I get that people are questioning Gensler, but doesn't it seem 
I mean, doesn't it seem so far consistent? Like, if anything, my only criticism would be maybe that they did what they've done too late. Like, none of the real actions that Gensler's taken other... Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess people are people are frustrated about ETF delays, but I haven't really heard a good counter-argument to their concern that Binance could manipulate the market, and that is their concern. And apparently there wasn't sufficient surveillance. And it seems like he is cracking down on tokens and exchanges, which is what he should be doing. And he's kind of been clearing a path for Bitcoin and mainstream adoption through his most recent actions. So ultimately, when I look back at his actions, it doesn't seem anything too inconsistent with what his job should be. And the fact that, you know, he worked at the CFTC and the fact that, you know, he's held lectures on cryptocurrency seems to me that he's using that experience to make these calls, but he's just doing it in a really kind of obtuse and somewhat industry aggressive way that causes a lot of upset. But I think the actions so far I agree with. Am I missing something? There is the issue that the SEC has approved futures-based ETF products for Bitcoin. And since the futures-based product derives its price from spot markets that the SEC claims can be manipulated, then why on earth would you approve it? And I think the answer is that futures-based products like paper gold products create an ability to potentially influence Bitcoin prices without having to hold underlying Bitcoin because they're cash settled. No Bitcoin changes hands. They're a highly speculative product. So in that context, I think that some of the concerns Gensler's SEC has put forward seem to fall apart. Because if you really cared about manipulation, you shouldn't have approved a futures-based product. But as I recall, these futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, they hit the market sort of in the bull run-up of the last cycle in 2020, 2021, and they potentially could have been used to put a damper on the Bitcoin price. So that seems a little fishy to me. It does seem inconsistent, unless the goal is really to just pave a path for mainstream like BlackRock type folks. So the futures then would make sense because perhaps that's where some of mainstream money goes. So it does suppress the actual market price, the spot price for a bit. And then you go clean house. Maybe first, your first, if you're Gary, now this is me totally speculating, but maybe your first track is try to get FTX to work with everybody because they're the big dog that you think you can work with. And then when that falls apart, you go play sheriff and you just clean up and then, you know, you let the folks roll in. And once everything's kind of the stage has been set, then it's like, okay, then BlackRock is comfortable announcing Larry's comfortable going on television talking about BlackRock. If you look at his actions, it has consistently led us to this point. That seems consistent, but you're right. The, the approving of the futures, but denying the spot because of market manipulation doesn't, yeah, that doesn't make any sense unless, unless you're trying to keep price down for a little while while you let things play out so your buddies on Wall Street can get in. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, July 21st, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... Oh, hey, it's me. Welcome back, everybody. It's Chris, right here. On today's show, we're going to discuss the stock-to-flow model again. There is some talk of the upcoming, or perhaps already started, Bitcoin bull market. And right on cue, stock-to-flow rears its hopium-filled head, predicting incredibly high prices of Bitcoin in the future. We also have a story about Kuwait, one of the Arab Gulf states that's been sort of a regulatory arbitrage destination for some crypto entrepreneurs and businesses, has banned Bitcoin. Uh-oh, what does that mean for regulatory arbitrage? Is that a workable strategy? We'll see. In economics, we have an article from Wall Street about the U.S. government's 
foreign financing of deficit spending and how that's reducing. Oh boy, does that mean that the U.S. government's spending is on a more sustainable path? Or does it mean that the Federal Reserve is purchasing most U.S. debt issuance? Hint, hint, it's the latter. In altcoin news, we listened to a fascinating podcast from Coin Center about the XRP legal finding, and it's a bit more complicated than we thought, and maybe the judge's ruling was not completely crazy. In Bitcoin education, I found a fun Bitcoin talk thread about how miners find valid blocks that I thought we'd read through. It really kind of visualized it for me. I thought it was uh, something to check out. And Bitcoin Optech 260 has the latest waiting for confirmation segment from Gloria Zhao and Merch. Actually, it's the last one. And it talks a little bit about what the point of that series was, how mempool and P2P policy is boring but necessary for the type of Bitcoin we want in the future. And then we have some boosts. And that's our show. I'm a bit dumbfounded that stock to flow is back again. I mean, I know there's people talking bull market and people get excited, but I thought it was properly debunked. I open up Twitter this week and sure enough, it's popping off like it's a brand new idea. And look at this. We're going to the moon, everybody. Strap on. Look at this great model. Uh, all right. I think we should probably just address this, don't you? I think you need to give the history because Plan B was the guy who stole your podcast logo. Uh, so you have a connection here. <laughs> Really? You're going to throw me under the bus like that and make it sound like it's personal? I really don't mind that he's using it. I'm done with it. So I believe he's Dutch, the individual behind the Plan B uh, name, and uh, he claims to be like a longtime industry investor. And, you know, he says the right things during a bull market that people love to hear. It's a lot of confirmation bias that he confirms. And so he came up with a model that's called the Bitcoin stock flow. You'll see it abbreviated sometimes as like S2FX. If you ever see somebody refer to the Bitcoin S2FX model, disregard what they're talking about. He came up with this concept that, Dad, you should probably explain, but it, it essentially looks at the issuance rate and the market price. I can't remember exactly. Kind of is just a self-affirming chart that always goes up. So number is always going to go up in this model. Most scams are always built around some truth or some fact that is then a little bit taken out of context. And the stock-to-flow model makes the observation that Assets that have a high monetary value tend to have a high ratio of the stock to the asset versus the flow. What does that mean? What it means is, for instance, with gold, which is the best example, there's a lot of gold that's been dug up, processed into bars and coins, and then put in vaults. And when the price of gold increases, there's an incentive to dig up more gold because it's more valuable, right? So if you have a gold mine that's in the side of a mountain and it's easily accessible, maybe you mine that all year round every year. But if you have a gold mine that's on the bottom of the ocean, maybe you only mine that when the price of gold is super high because suddenly it's worth giving all your miners scuba suits so they can go down and mine that underwater gold mine because it's very expensive, right? So as the price of a material or commodity increases, it's natural for more people to start producing it. But with gold, because gold has been mined for so many thousands of years, most of the easy to access gold has already been dug up. And so when the price of gold increases a lot, it's not possible 
to increase the production of gold. And that means that there's a lot of stock of gold, but even if the price is pumping like crazy, you can't really increase the production of gold. That means that the stock is very high, the flow is very low, and this is the stock to flow model. And so this model assumes that because gold has a high stock and a low flow, it'll be a monetary metal. And this high ratio stock to flow predicts a high price for gold. Generally, I think in his model, a high market cap for gold. Bitcoin obviously has these characteristics too, because the flow, the emission of new Bitcoin is programmatic and it decreases on 200,000 block intervals, which is about four years. And this is the Bitcoin halvening cycle. And so in the first cycle, when Satoshi started mining, you got 50 Bitcoin per block. And then in the next cycle that started on block 200,001, you got 25, then 12.5. We're currently in the 6.25 epoch. And the next epoch that is starting, I think, next year is going to be 3.1 to whatever, five something. So as Bitcoin's flow, the new Bitcoin emitted decrease, the stock to flow model interprets this as Bitcoin's market cap going to the moon. Bitcoin's going to increase in value dramatically. And of course, this is what Bitcoiners want to hear. This is a very popular discussion point during bull markets. And it doesn't sound crazy, right? I mean, we sort of think this is directionally right, don't we? What, that the number will go up? Yes. Although uh, there's a meme out there, and I think it's so it's so perfect. It shows what people think holding Bitcoin's like, what, what holding Bitcoin's actually like. And you go through these dips and these valleys. Like We are presently, I have been informed, in Bitcoin's longest bear market in history so far. You walk through that valley for a while. And I don't, I don't like telling people the, I don't even like giving people the idea that if they invested today, they're going to get returns in five years, which has historically been consistent. But we don't know if that'll remain consistent. The economy is crazy. Anything could happen. I think all odds going to go up, but models, I just don't think can predict this because there's so many external factors that impact the market's willingness to spend money on Bitcoin right now. We aren't in that phase yet where everybody wants to hold a little piece. We're not in that. We're not in that stage. We're in that stage where it's an optional thing. It's an optional expense. And so it could dramatically affect the price still, depending on where things go economically, depending on policies, all kinds of things, world events. So that's why I've never really been a big fan of any of these models, because they sort of assume those external external things just aren't going to be a factor. <laughs> it just never happens. The problem with the stock to flow model specifically is that it's examining a function where it says that the market value is a function of a commodity's stock to flow. Because if you think about it, uh, stock times price is the market value and stock over flow is the stock to flow relationship. So you've got stock, you know, on both sides of the equation. So if you then attempt to do a linear regression on this equation, which is what the model is, it's a linear regression, which is sort of the stupidest form of like predictive regression you can do, then of course it's going to correlate because you have the same thing on each side of the equation. So it's just kind of bad math. And when you challenge plan B on this, he'll come back at you with, you know, new models with different parameters that are just as arbitrary. And if you challenge him enough, he'll block you on Twitter. So just beware of models like stock to flow. They're kind of BS. They tell people what they want to hear. At the same time, there is something here in that commodities with a very high stock to flow ratio can have a monetary premium. Why isn't platinum 
a monetary metal. Platinum is even rarer than gold. Platinum jewelry is very expensive. So why don't we use platinum the same way? The answer is because the flow of platinum is very volatile. If the price of platinum goes up, production of platinum can double or triple or quadruple the next year. So this low stock to flow ratio means that platinum is not a good monetary metal. Famously, right, uh, stock to flow predicted that Bitcoin would hit 100,000. Was it last December or the December before? I can't remember now. And it famously did not hit 100,000. And people really came out of the woodwork after the stock to flow model. And I thought that's why it would be dead. When that 100,000 Bitcoin price target was horribly missed, it just seemed like it would have discredited it. I think you can brush it away with FTX, paper Bitcoin, something like that. Ah, yes, yes, of course. Restrictive or tightening of the monetary policy, things like that, which are the exact external factors which make me not trust these models. And also the problem is the model doesn't really make sense in that one, there's no demand function here. This model assumes that demand for Bitcoin is constant. And the only thing that matters is the stock to flow ratio. We know that's not true. Demand for Bitcoin is quite volatile, actually. Also, you're measuring the price of Bitcoin in dollars. How many dollars are there in the world? Completely arbitrary. It just, it changes every day. So you can see how there are a lot of unknown parameters in this model. So if it behaves as expected, then, um, you know, you got quite lucky. I don't know if it's worth talking much more about it, but there's a lot of uh, documentation in the show notes uh, that kind of gets into the nitty gritty of the model and how it actually works, if you're interested. This is a Bitcoin Dad public service announcement. Avoid the stock to flow model. And uh, you can also disregard people that are referencing it. This has been uh, your public service announcement. And for our next public service announcement, if you are considering moving your crypto business to a Gulf state, take heed. Kuwait has banned Bitcoin transactions. What's going on here? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Ruh-roh. Yeah, and, f- and we're, weren't some of the Gulf areas, wasn't that kind of becoming sort of a haven for uh, certain crypto businesses? I know Dubai also is uh, sort of a hotbed of crypto biz. And UAE, right? Yeah. And Emirates. I know I that think. area, but I think and I, but I think they have been more hands off so far. It's based on the based on the people that I follow that are operating their businesses over there. It sounds like they have been more hands off. Uh, but I, you know, Kuwait. I guess they they have a different opinion. Down, you know, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But it doesn't seem fair. And the interesting thing is that this prohibition is coming because Kuwait is trying to maintain compliance with FATF, Financial Action Task Force which we used to talk about a lot, but has sort of fallen under the radar. And this is one of these non-elected bodies that provides sort of advisories that slowly become international standard. And they're very hostile to financial freedom, financial privacy, and very much interested in know your customer and anti-money laundering and financial surveillance laws that would cover most financial transactions. I see. And so Kuwait's decision is instead of coming up with regulations that would adhere to all of the monitoring and surveillance requirements of the Financial Action Task Force recommendations, they just said, ah, screw it, we're going to ban it. And I think this speaks to Kuwait is still possibly a pretty young, small, immature financial market. So they're very vulnerable if they... Don't abide by FATF. What if they get sanctioned? What if they get penalties and cut off from SWIFT? That could cause huge problems. Yeah, so they're much more dependent on the West than, say, like the UAE or Dubai is because, you know, they're they're fine. They don't don't really care because this is really a UN-affiliated group, this Financial Action Task Force, right? They're headquartered in Paris. 
and they work through the UN predominantly. So it's like if you want to if you want to be on the West good side, you follow their their recommendations for surveillance. And you know their entire purpose, they state, is to combat quote money laundering and terrorism financing, which we would argue are not big problems. Yeah, but you don't want to fund terrorism, do you, Dad? You don't want to fund terrorism. Remember 9-11? I do remember 9-11. I don't understand why removing the financial privacy of everyone in the world would have stopped 9-11. I think that financial surveillance financial surveillance is much more effective for controlling political participation than eliminating terrorism. But if you classify all political activity that's non-state state sanctioned as terrorism, then I guess you're correct. We do need AML in that world and anti-terrorist laws. It is a sophisticated system where they can kind of coerce enforcement through what seems like good goals, like preventing terrorism, preventing crime. Protecting children. Right. And it's a worldwide problem. So on its face, it's hard to argue that these are bad organizations. But then when you look at how they use these instruments to force a overall Western agenda across the entire world, it, it in totality over the last 50 years seems to be more like a means of coercion and control than it does anything else. I think that this also raises a bit of a red flag for this argument about regulatory arbitrage, which is this idea that because the incentives to use Bitcoin are so good, first movers have an advantage. So even if the EU or the US bans Bitcoin or Bitcoin use in the banking system, other countries will have an incentive to allow it because then they can get an advantage and move fast and move first and foster a domestic industry. Well, this is kind of a network effect problem because the biggest network in the financial world is still the dollar network, which is largely US controlled. And FATF and these rules are definitely formulated with the involvement of sort of US financial authorities like the Treasury. And if you create a competing system, then they will probably sanction you. And in the short term, that's going to be much more painful than just foregoing involvement with Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can totally understand it from their perspective. It sort of stinks from like, you know, a uh, freedom of the people, the ability to have a worldwide currency that is divorced from the drama of their nation state and how that feels like that should be a human right. And it sort of sucks from that standpoint. But in time, these things will change. I mean, they could, in theory, take a couple of years once they look around the world and create the necessary regulations and laws that just say at the fiat off ramps, you have to monitor properly. And I think that they would probably be in compliance. But I can understand why it's just easier and safer for them to just play it safe and comply right now. And the last thing on this is that the Gulf states are not democracies. They're generally kingdoms and very authoritarian. And I just view that as risky in terms of operating there because there's no check and balance on executive power. And so you will have radical shifts in policy like Kuwait banning Bitcoin. So, you know, obviously entrepreneurs are monitoring the situation. They don't need our advice, but that's just something to consider. I think there's a lot of frustration with how slow and goofy democracy has been in the US and European countries over the past few decades. But there is an advantage to that because it does slow down these radical shifts in policy that can be, you know, just overnight destroy entire industries. Not that that still doesn't happen in democracies, but there are some mitigations that don't exist in places like Kuwait. Yeah. And legal processes too, right? That sort of work things out through the court system and can reverse some decisions and things like that, where this is yeah, um, totally a different thing. 
Do you want to talk about the trend that we've been seeing with foreign demand for U.S. debt? You sort of brought this topic up before on the show, and we started saying, hey, this looks like a trend, but WallStreet.com has an article out that is saying here, like, look at Japan, China, the two largest holders of U.S. Treasury securities have been reducing their holdings for years, and the trend continues. I guess Europe's still loading up, though, so that's good. Right. Where else is Europe going to go? Are they going to buy euros? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Russia? No. No. China? No. Are we in a situation now where there's not really a buyer for our, there's not enough buyers for our debt? And so we just have to buy it ourselves. Can we do that? That's been Lynn Alden's observation for some time that the Federal Reserve is becoming the cook of a restaurant that eats most of their own cooking. Doesn't sound like a healthy business. So up until 2014, there was a global economic model where, and I think Japan is the best example of this, where basically you have an East Asian country, um, Japan, Korea, then China, Thailand, I think also participated in this model, where this country sets their exchange rate relatively low compared to the dollar. And this makes labor quite cheap relative to the U.S. in this country. And then they capture some labor-intensive industries that used to be performed onshore in the U.S., and they ship those goods to the U.S. And this is an export-led growth model. You can achieve high growth for short to medium periods of time on this model, but you end up with some imbalances. And one of those imbalances is that your currency will sort of tend to want to appreciate because as you export goods to the U.S., your country, specifically the businesses in that country that are selling goods for dollars, they accumulate dollars and then they want to distribute these dollars internally to their employees and then their employees start buying nicer things. And then you also start importing more luxury goods or developing internal luxury good industries and things. And, th and this, this tends to raise prices in your economy and make you less competitive. And so it sort of naturally defeats this export-led growth model. And I think this process of essentially keeping your currency relatively low to give your domestic industries export competitiveness is often called mercantilism. So you might hear that term used. Well, the way that you prevent the natural sort of stabilization of your currency and losing that export competitiveness is you don't allow the dollars that your domestic firms and exporters accumulate to circulate. You somehow prevent those dollars from circulating in your economy. That means that basically the workers in your economy, they don't really see the full benefit of their labor. Wages remain relatively low. So where did those dollars go? Well, up until 2014, those dollars went into U.S. government securities that financed U.S. government deficit spending. And Japan did this. Korea did this. China then did this. And these countries ended up with massive holdings of U.S. government debt. Well, that's actually begun to shift because 34% of U.S. treasuries were held by foreigners in 2014. And in 2023, that number is only 24%. It's reduced significantly. And the major sell-offs have come from China and Japan, which were the two largest exporters that were sending exports to the United States. So this is interesting because basically as China and Japan divest of their dollar holdings, this is kind of a sign that the global East Asian export model 
is changing. Globalization itself seems to be changing. And that means that the uh, growth and the sort of inflation expectations of the last 40 years also need to be changing. And of course, it also means that where are we going to put all of this US government debt? Well, it's ending up on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which is debt monetization, which is, in my view, fundamentally inflationary, because it's creating additional dollars that are going into the US financial system via the Federal Reserve. So this also sort of indirectly stimulates the price of financial assets in the US, which, of course, created the everything bubble of the past 10 years. And so in an odd way, you know, there's pressure for that bubble to continue. Right. Well, I would imagine that that bubble means the status quo. It means lifestyles. It means all kinds of power. Yeah. Central managers better figure that out. Better keep it going. It's a good thing they have going. I think it's a very complicated situation because while the largest old holders are slimming their portfolios of U.S. government debt, Canada, Taiwan, India, the U.K., they're also increasing their exposure. So there are a lot of competing forces here. But I think the biggest takeaway is just that the relationship, the economic relationship between Japan, China, and the U.S. seems to be shifting. And in many ways, that has been the most important economic relationship over the past 40 years for American lifestyles, I would say, because most American lifestyle goods come from there. And many of us have grown up with that just being the way it's always been, right? Everything's been made in China and Taiwan, but, but mostly China. I remember Taiwan stickers too. But I, and I remember my grandparents and my folks remarking on it. Oh, made in China. And I thought, well, of course it is. Everything's made in China. And it just always has been that way. And uh, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to grow up in an era where goods were plentiful, I suppose. And this was a huge deflationary impulse because those goods are essentially solidified labor from places where the price of labor was very cheap. And as the access to that labor reduces and the price of that labor increases, then prices generally increase. And as prices increase, we discover that some industries, some things that we've always taken for granted no longer make sense. You were just talking about some building works where you can't replace skilled construction workers anymore. And, you know, that's interesting. That means that maybe there are certain types of contracting and building development that you can't really do in the U.S. anymore because it's just not feasible to sort of retrain the skills of some employees who are retiring. Yeah. A family member, close family member, um, or owns a construction business, and this has been his struggle. And, um, you know, he's he's been in business for 30, 40 years and uh, has really only been in the last, probably, it's probably been, it's probably been slowly building for a decade. Um, but I, I think he really felt like it really hit hard in the last three years. And he is unable to really replace his retiring staff who've worked with him forever and are extremely experienced. And um, retention's really low too. New guys come on, they apprentice, they pay them for it. You know, they, they basically make them an employee while they're getting trained up and they shadow somebody for a while. And then a lot of them leave. They have they, they have a, a high churn rate, which they've never really experienced before either. Do they know what the complaint is? Is it cost of living in the area or, or what is it? I mean, in the case of the most recent one, it was too stressful. The guy was overwhelmed by the work and operating the machinery. That has actually been sort of common 
issue. He kind of, you know, he kind of takes it as what's wrong with this young generation. Like they just don't have a work ethic. And I don't make to make, make him sound like a hard guy because he's, you know, he's got really reasonable expectations and he, he treats his employees well, but it has just been tricky because there's a multitude of issues. It's, it's slim pickings. And then sometimes they leave for another job that pays more or they move, they leave location. Or in this case of this most recent one, it was just, ah, this isn't for me. You know, now that I'm out here and I'm doing this, this is, this is not what I want to do. It's too stressful. And they left, you know, and that's after months and months of working with somebody. It's, and that's a big investment. Kind of reminds me of in 2016 in China, we started to notice that it was pretty hard to hire new factory workers. And part of the issue was cultural because our current staff were people who had moved from smaller cities to larger cities. And so they kind of, they'd grown up from uh, in farming families. And so they, they had pretty low expectations about work, but then their children, the next generation of workers, they grew up in the city with smartphones and internet and TV, and they just had much higher expectations from their life and opportunities and things they wanted to do. And just working in a factory suddenly became a really, really hard sell. And so we would have these crazy situations where, you know, we'd hire new people, they'd come, they'd literally work for a day or two, and they'd be like, hey, it's going great, you know, great job. And then they just leave, like ghost us. It was amazing. Not even collect their salary. I would actually love input from the audience if they want to boost in on this. I have felt myself reluctant to encourage my kids to consider a trade or something other than the college trajectory because it feels like I'm doing them a disservice. Like I'm asking them to like live a middle class life or something. But I, in, in like in inside, I know that like a good trade job would be great for them. They would, they would get a, they would have a, a probably good union job. They'd have a good living. They'd have good medical. They'd learn a useful trade skill like carpentry or electric or some sort of electrical skill where they could actually apply it at their own home too, which is just such a massive enabler. And yet I feel hesitant to do it because it seems counter culture. It feels like I'd be counter narrative. I feel like I'd be pushing back on common wisdom that encourages all kids to go get some degree and go work at an information job or sit at a desk and, and work at some level in the company and then work their way up that ladder. And that doesn't seem like a viable path anymore, but yet I feel my, I feel hesitant to suggest anything else or influence in, in any other way. Yeah. It does feel like there is some big changes in the job market and all of that. I was actually talking to an intern at our company. It was interesting. They're, you know, they're an intern, they're in college, but they were very enmeshed in the Microsoft ecosystem. They wanted to do everything in Power BI. And I was like, hey, I don't know about this. You know, we, we have this, we use this open source thing too, you know, uh, Grafana. Like you should definitely check it out. You know, make sure you have like multiple options here. And we were just sort of talking about it for a bit. And it was, it was interesting because I kind of felt like how when I was a college student, my parents gave me advice about finding a job that, you know, might have been helpful 40 years previously. And now talking to this person, I kind of feel like, well, what advice could I give? I mean, you know, if it was 10 years ago, the answer was you should go and do software development, right? That, there's where all of the high salaries Learn are. about this cloud thing. There's this going to be this cloud thing. It's going to be huge. I know. But what do we say now? Like, oh, go and do the AI thing. But we know that- no. You can't just walk into that. You know, data science was a scam. There's a, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people with PhDs and a lot of experience with sort of statistical modeling. And so how are you going to compete with them? You know, they already paid, way overpaid for that qualification, and now they can get a data <laughs> science job. So, you know, what What are you going to do? Yeah. I, well, I believe your advice to my son was learn Rust, which is probably good advice. I heard that on a JB show, I think. There's always, I think, value in learning the fundamentals of technology. I think it makes you a better developer. Uh, if you go that route, you know, learning networking, learning what TCP IP is, how that works, makes you a better Bitcoiner too. 
Yeah, I wonder, I look at this and I think, what is the next wave that's going to, that's really going to turn things around? You know, it's going to be the thing that my kids can, you know, get a career out of and, you know, helps the economy again. And I think what would be ideal would be, it'd be some, it'd be some innovation in energy. I think that'd be what would be ideal. But I don't know if that, if that next wave comes from the tech industry. I'd like to think it might be Bitcoin to some degree, because if the Bitcoin game theory were able to play out, you could have so many industries and so many jobs from, you know, the grid and renewables to mining that are good trade skill jobs. I've fantasized about quitting everything and running off to some small town that has a big Bitcoin mining operation and just getting a job in that data center. Like I've fantasized about it. But then you also have all of the layer two applications and all of the functionality and solutions that need to be built on top of Bitcoin. And then inevitably Bitcoin financial institutions that are maybe fediment based or something that could be a whole other layer that we don't even know yet. And there's so much financial gain and opportunity just from one technology, much like there was with the Internet. I believe Bitcoin is sort of like the Internet of money. And there's just such a massive, massive, massive valley of opportunity there. But I don't know if it's actually ever going to, at least in this next decade, going to get the fire hose fully opened up or not. But that could be one thing that that turns things around. And then maybe there's a Bitcoin industry that just becomes obvious that my, you know, my kids as they're reaching their 20s and 30s should just get into the Bitcoin industry. I don't, I don't know. I'd love to see it. Last week, we discussed the summary judgment in the XRP versus SEC case in the, I think, the Southern or Eastern District of New York. And we were quite puzzled by the judgment because it seemed to kind of talk out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, XRP sales to institutions were investment contracts and they were you know, illegal under via the SEC's claim. But then the judge also ruled that secondary sales of XRP on exchange were not securities offerings when sort of anonymous people, probably retail individuals, bought them. And we thought that was strange. I listened to a really interesting discussion from Coin Center, which is a crypto lobbying institution in Washington that puts out a podcast every now and then. And I recommend giving it a listen if you want to dive a bit deeper into this conversation. And I'll just repeat one insight from that conversation, which is that part of the ruling had to do with the fact that how individuals view the token doesn't necessarily matter. The fact that individuals who bought XRP might have believed that it was somehow a claim on XRP like a stock, like they had some kind of rights relative to the Ripple Labs company, that doesn't matter. What matters is the actual facts, the actual sort of investment relationships and how this token is being used. I think one problem with this ruling was it was a summary judgment. So neither side disputed the facts of the case. And I think Ripple maintains some facts that are pretty obviously false. They have this view that they just discovered XRP. They didn't create it, which is I think kind of misleading. So the ruling is a bit more complicated than I thought. And I don't recommend getting too deep into it because it's pretty frustrating, but it sort of speaks to how there can be a lot of unintentional consequences based on these legal rulings, such that given the facts that were presented to this judge, if they had concluded that the secondary sales to retail individuals were securities offerings, we might potentially end up in a world where, you know, if we're messing around with technology and we produce a token, almost incidentally, if people think that token is a security, then they could start sort of suing us and making claims against us. And, you know, we might live in a world where, you know, people are just very cautious about what they do for fear of being sued because anyone could just say, hey, I thought it was a security. I thought I had rights. Now I do. So there might be something to that view. I'm not sure 
maybe give it a listen. It would be interesting to see if at some point in the future, the SEC does contest the immaculate conception of XRP. But I, I wonder if your read is the same. One of the other takeaways I sort of had from this is, well, okay, well, when the VCs bought in, then that was a security, then that sort of sets a precedent that future crypto projects are probably going to have to be more careful about that presale and that they're going to have to fairly distribute that. Now, the VCs could gobble a whole bunch up at a cheap price. They could know the date it goes on the market and all that kind of stuff. But they, they probably have to now avoid getting access to it before it's sold to the public because otherwise they get slapped with securities issue. And I think that's actually kind of, if I'm correct, and I'm curious if you agree, I think that's actually kind of a nice win because it it really knocks out a lot of how these new coins pop onto the market is with funding. They, they, they get millions of dollars. They staff up, they get a big marketing department and they blitz and they blitz the whole crypto community with their release and they do airdrops and they do marketing campaigns with exchanges like Coinbase. And it's all a bunch of, you know, financed marketing that comes from that presale and those early investors. And it seems like that model is going to have to change now with this ruling. Do you agree? I think the ruling is going to be contested. So I don't know. Mm, yeah, ultimately true. Yeah. I do agree that finding the initial pre-sale and a securities offering is interesting because it means Ethereum still can't relax about this. And if Ethereum is not blessed, then Solana and all of those other VC coins are definitely in trouble. I think the second part of this ruling that sort of kind of implies that exchanges can go ahead and sell these tokens has given a lift to all of these altcoins. But who knows if that will last? We'll just have to see how the appeals go. Yeah, there's a there's a, a real bull vibe right now. And I think it's I don't know. I, th- I think it's sort of silly. I just can't I can't get behind any any price increase until we've cleared like next year. You know, it just so people could be very well throwing money into XRP. And then what? You're going to wait years and years for some sort of deal to work out. You're going to survive a recession if that lands. Like it just seems like a silly time to be aping into a, a token that clearly has an uncertain future still. But, you know, ape's going to ape. Shall we drop an ad in here? And I'd encourage you to ape into Jupiter Broadcasting. JupiterBroadcasting.com. We're trying a new model with Office Hours. That episode just went out and we dig into some of the incentives around social media platforms and uh, kind of why I'm going to be taking a look at Noster a little bit more seriously in the future. You can find Office Hours over at Jupiter Broadcasting com as well as a bunch of other fine pods for your ears. In Bitcoin education, the first link I found is a discussion on the Bitcoin talk forum from 2011. Now you were probably on there, Chris. Wait, is that <laughs> you? Yeah, that was totally me. Garmia, maybe. Yeah, that's what I went by. It talks about how miners actually find blocks. And before they hash a block, they kind of need to uh, increment the nonce. Nonce stands for number only used once. Because the way that you find a valid hash for the next block, you know, the process we call mining, is you take the transactions that you're going to put in the block, and then you package that up, and then you hash it. But to find a valid hash, you need to be able to make at least a one byte change in the block before you hash it again. And because these mining ASICs, they're providing millions or tens of millions of hashes per second, you need a sort of a number you can increment billions of times, potentially, before you find a valid block. This is the nonce, and there are about 4 billion potential increments in the nonce. But then it turns out that there's something called extra nonce, which is another field that miners can sort of use to add additional randomness 
and uh, have more space to find valid hashes. So I won't pretend to fully understand this. I'm not a Bitcoin miner. And so this is, you know, a bit theoretical to me, but I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And I suggest giving it a perusal if you'd like to learn more. It got me hyped to run a node. I want to run another node. We've also, because it's another week, got another Bitcoin optech, number 260. Which is very thin. Nothing happened on the mailing list, but we received the last waiting for confirmation post from Merch and Gloria Zhao, which was a series of 10 posts about Bitcoin peer-to-peer policy and the mempool. And I think that part of the impetus to write about this and try to garner more attention on this subject is that Gloria observed that many Bitcoin proposals, uh, soft forks, new layer twos, exciting stuff, depend on some improvements in peer-to-peer and mempool technology that have been talked about for many years, but not implemented. Specifically, package relay, the ability to send multiple Bitcoin transactions together between nodes. Sounds simple, right? Well, because Bitcoin is an adversarial network and each node knows nothing about the other nodes, it doesn't know if the node it's connecting to is malicious, if it's a good guy node, no idea. It turns out that these small changes can radically change the network, potentially moving it from a decentralized network that anyone can participate in to a centralized network of corporate servers, potentially. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. And I think the work that Gloria and other developers are doing on these peer-to-peer aspects of Bitcoin is really important. I'm sorry that I have referred to some of these posts as dry in the past. I mean, it is important work, and I'm glad they're taking that discussion seriously. I was just saying, I love the fact that I could just, I could throw a node on an Odroid. We'll have links to that in the show notes. And of course, remember, you can get in touch with the pod, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. You can try the Twitter thing if you want, at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Or why not do it in real time? Join the Matrix. Our Matrix channel is linked in the show notes. You just need a client like Element. All of that's over there. And perhaps our favorite way to get in touch with the show is the boost. You can send a boost into the show. And we have a few boosts this week, including a baller boost from Eric99, who sent in 50,000 sats with the message, stay humble, stack sats. That's a great meme. Originally coined by Matt O'Dell. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Eric. It says it, doesn't it? And thank you, Eric. We appreciate that. Uh, That was uh, a nice chunk of the support this week. JJ Jammer J comes in with 12,000 sats from the podcast index. Value for value boost. Really appreciate the extra episodes we've gotten recently. Oh, thanks, JJ. Thanks for the big boost. Neural P sends in 16,499 sats. I'm not sure what that means. From Castomatic. Just a simple thank you. And thank you so much for the support. We really appreciate it. I like that. If 16,499 uh, means something, I want to know, but appreciate that boost a lot, Neural. Thank you. MCOT came in with 1,144 sats using Fountain. Says, thanks for the weekly podcast, Dad and Chris. I love listening to it and boosting in with a little value. I'm usually under the shout out cutoff, which is okay because I don't always have something to say. But last week, Chris made an exception and paraphrased my under the boost limit. I know the sub 1K boosts are not much value yet, but I do very much appreciate you guys interacting with your audience. Cheers and keep up the good work. Well, thank you. Appreciate the little extra boost this week. We have a final boost over the limit, a thousand sats from at Halleck, but there was no message provided. Sad face. Just a little value. Just a little value. We'll take that. Thanks so much. Yeah. 
appreciate everybody who boosted. And we had uh, six boosters this week, and uh, we appreciate everybody who has a moment, takes the time to load up those stats if they don't have them already, or goes and gets Albie and gets that all figured out, heads over to the podcast index, whatever route you take, we appreciate your time there. And of course, we appreciate when you send in value as a way to say thanks and help finance the production of the pod. We also received some streaming boosts from Albie and a 3000 sat boost, which I believe is our oak.home or oak.node. Hey, Bob. Recurring booster. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Bob. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, July 21st, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with, with me, Chris. Hey, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.